Hello and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I am your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today's episode is about tabletop role-playing games, as well as a sci-fi and fantasy literary canon that is at least partially responsible for the creation of that very hobby, the Appendix N reading list. I'll be discussing all of this with Jeff Goad. Jeff is a major role-playing game enthusiast, a certified roadworthy judge who runs public games at conventions and other venues. He's also the co-host of no less than three podcasts, Cleveland, the Any Award-winning tabletop RPG podcast Spellburn, and the Appendix N Book Club. I myself have greatly enjoyed working my way through the archives of those last two and recommend you do the same. But first, here's Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Hello. All right, so um, why don't we start at the beginning here? Um, of course, you are a tabletop enthusiast. Uh, could you maybe um, tell our listeners what you think makes tabletop RPGs such a great hobby? Hmm. Well, I really enjoy it because it feels like it's collaborative storytelling. It's an opportunity to sit down with uh, friends of mine and tell a story together. You know, we also roll dice and it is, it's still a game, but it's it's not a game like most people think of games because there's no winner. There's no loser. Uh, there's no real kind of clear format for when the game how the game begins and how the game ends, it really is kind of a combination of board game and improv and collaborative storytelling. So it really is kind of a thing that doesn't exist in any other form. Yeah, yeah. And I, I hear you about the, the no winners or loser things. When I was playing in high school, my parents would always come in after the game and be like, so who won this time? And I'm like, well, we all had fun. So <laughs> you know, I guess we're all the winners, mom. Oh, what a nice sentiment. <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes even if your character dies, you might be the one who had the most fun that day. Oh, for sure. I think one of the best lessons uh, of the game is, is getting into the idea that, you know, you can die or you can roll up a character with very low stats and actually end up getting a lot of enjoyment out of it. Like right now I'm playing a, an Intelligence 4 warrior in DCC who makes cheese and he thinks everything he doesn't understand is a demon. You know, like that's <laughs> fun. Like <laughs> Absolutely. Although I will say another thing that I love about this hobby is just how varied it is. And although you and I would agree that that's our kind of fun, there's a lot of people in the hobby who would not enjoy playing a low-statted character. And they're really looking for high heroics where your character is essentially starting the game as kind of a, an impervious demigod. That's not my style, but a lot of people also really love playing it that way. And also there's great games like Call of Cthulhu where you're not heroic at all. You're just some it, you're just some investigator who's trying to find out more about some unknown evil that will probably kill you. Or there are story games like Monster Hearts where basically you're just teenagers who want to have lots of sex. <laughs> for sure exactly yeah no i i i love playing uh call of cthulhu and just watching my sanity meter go down and the more desperate actions that everybody starts taking just trying to survive so i'm curious how how did you come to the hobby so my start was i was i was 10 years old and my friend josh was nine and we had a neighbor who was in his 30s 
who played Dungeons and Dragons, and this was 1990, so second edition had just came out, has just come out. Mm. And so he invited us to join his group. So it was just like a 10-year-old and a 9-year-old playing with adults. Um, and we had a lot of fun, but we probably only played two or three sessions before that person had to go away. And But then Josh and I were just hooked on this thing. So I remember I used to go to this comic book store called Cliff's Comic World and I bought all these like Dungeons and Dragons books and I started running us through Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't know how the rules really worked <laughs> and it was just two of us. So it was largely just us making things up, but it was really fun. And then when I was 12, I was six foot three with dyed black hair and smoking cigarettes. Uh, so I started playing Vampire the Masquerade. Yes. <laughs> and then when I was 14, I decided I was way too cool for role playing games at all. So I completely stopped and I didn't play again until I was 18. And then when I was 18, I was kind of this hipster kid living in Seattle, working at record stores. And um, one block from the record store I worked at was the Wizards of the Coast headquarters, which also had a big store there. And third edition had just come out. And me and my friend Josh, who also lived in Seattle at this point, decided we'd start playing again. But like, ironically, <laughs> um, and after a session or two, we realized it wasn't ironic. We just were having a lot of fun. And then from then on, I just kept playing. So I'm now 39. And from the ages of 10 to 39, I've been playing constantly with the, the exception of that 14 to 18 age gap. <laughs> That's awesome, man. And I, it's always funny looking back at when you're a kid and you're like, I'm too cool for this thing and that I love now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, I mean, sort of tying into the, the fiction half of what we're discussing today. Uh, you know, it's funny. I um, have been role playing in one form or another since probably about the same age. I picked up uh, Thassa's Mech Warrior um, and uh, then Shadowrun soon after that. And I knew D&D existed, of course, uh, primarily in the form of ads in the back of comics I'd see. Um, but I hit that weird moment where I think a lot of genre fans do, where you get this silly idea in your head as a middle schooler, maybe, that you have to choose a team between fantasy or sci-fi. Yes. Um, and I was convinced that sci-fi was very, you know, mature and sophisticated, you know, not like that silly fantasy stuff. Q, you know, lots of silly sci-fi. Um, and so I made this call and it extended to my role-playing game habits. So I just played uh, everything but D&D seemingly for years until in re about three years ago. I thought, you know, maybe I'll try a, a rogue or paladin or something. Um, and a friend got me into uh, Beyond the Wall. Uh, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with. So it's a great beginner podcast. I use it sometimes as a podcast, um, <laughs> beginner role playing game uh, that I use to uh, to teach people sometimes when I do demos of games, uh, and um, based around a bunch of 14 year olds basically uh, trying to figure out what is beyond the wall of their village. Uh, and it's been a really neat journey where, like, I'm very familiar with the hobby, but I'm with new eyes. I'm, I'm from there. I leapt to the OSR. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jeff. It's the OSR stands for Old School uh, Rules or Old School Revolution. And old school revival. There's a lot of people who have different ideas about what OSR stands for, and um, they get very upset if you uh, say the wrong thing. So, oh dear. Okay, <laughs> it can well, mean they... a lot of things. I I prefer old school revival. Okay, uh, and actually, now that I mentioned that, I think that's a pretty cool side of the hobby. Would you Would you mind maybe um, giving your take uh, on on OSR for listeners? Uh, absolutely. So basically what happened for a lot of gamers is when third edition came out, a lot of people were were unhappy with the rule set. They felt it was too crunchy, meaning that there were too many rules. 
uh, so a lot of people started going back to the really old school style of gaming. And so on internet forums, this, this scene was starting to build. And it was primarily what we call grognards, who are like the old school gamers who've been playing since the very beginning. And then when fourth edition came out, then that was a very polarizing edition and Mm -hmm. Dungeons and Dragons lost a lot of their fan base with fourth edition because fourth edition was very much trying to compete with world of Warcraft. And instead of embracing what makes Dungeons and Dragons different Dungeons and Dragons, then was trying to become more like world of Warcraft and you're not going to be better than world of Warcraft at being world of Warcraft. Uh, It's not going to happen. I remember seeing the ads and it was all framed around that. Yeah. Wouldn't you rather hang out with your friends at a table instead of being a lonely dork at a computer? And I was like, <laughs> and it's like, can't we be both? <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> so around fourth edition, that's when the OSR really exploded because then suddenly it wasn't just this kind of smaller community that was built around the people who weren't interested in third edition. There was this huge influx of people who were suddenly very interested in old school gaming. And that's that, that was my experience. Experience. And when that happened, I got really into playing classic Traveler, playing the original box sets of Dungeons and Dragons, especially the Moldvay Basic Expert set. Uh, but also, people like myself got really excited about retro clones, which are games that are designed to emulate the old school rules. So, things like Labyrinth Lord, Swords and Wizardry, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. And then other games that were not retro clones, but are very kind of um, embracing an old school spirit came along, like Dungeon Crawl Classics. Right. Or then there were games like Dungeon World, which are kind of doing that, but they're primarily a story game. So it also branches into kind of the story game side. And story gamers tend to be kind of more of the theater kids where the hardcore uh, like like tabletop players tend to be a little bit more the... um, the oh i don't know the the kind of hardcore board gamers like there's kind of the yeah the board game versus theater kid bridge yeah i've definitely noticed a difference uh there i've got a friend who's a very hardcore board gamer but amongst the the group uh, of buddies everybody else is role-playing gamer people right so when he jams it tends to be very uh dungeon and trap heavy and very board gamey and then meanwhile like i'm a writer and so you can imagine i'm more of the theater nerd on that side uh more of the storytelling mm-hmm. um yeah, and then which brings me to another question, which is like, you know, who uh, who is playing RPGs these days? Because of course, there's the old cliche of it being just a bunch of smelly nerds in a basement or whatever. Uh, there's a nostalgic, more positive vision of that same thing that we see in, say, Stranger Things. Um, but I think it's way more people than that playing these days, certainly in my experience. And I also really like how, you know, RPGs can be really inclusive. Uh, I remember hearing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, on an episode of Spellburn or two, you mentioned uh, being part of something called Dungeons and Drag Queens. Yes. So, um, I yeah. So the, the hobby traditionally has been very straight, very white and very male. And I'm a straight I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a white male, but I'm not straight. I'm gay. Uh, so kind of being in the hobby early on, there wasn't a whole lot of other people who I really identified with being a gay man. I didn't really see a lot of that present in my hobby. And kind of historically, I wasn't seeing a lot of women playing and I wasn't seeing a lot of people of color playing either. As as the years have gone by, that has been changing. And there's also been a big effort within the role-playing game industry to 
make the game feel safer and more inviting for people of all walks of life. And a big part of doing that is taking a look at how we represent people in our artwork and in our writing, because when you open up the books and all you see are white men carrying swords and protecting women who are on their knees and um, you know begging for help or who are who yeah, are strapped classic, down, uh, classic Frazetta ladies, yeah, being carried over shoulders and stuff, yeah. Absolutely. And there's and, and that stuff is it's very fun. It's evocative. It's where we come from. But that's not what we necessarily need in 2019. It's important in our artwork and in our writing to have really strong depictions of women, to have uh, queer representation, to have uh, people of color taking on um, important, um, important roles in the stories and very visible in the artwork. And and I don't mean like, you know, having like a black character yeah. on page 312 like it's important to really kind of include them all throughout the artwork and we're seeing more of that and because of that the hobby is growing and i think people sometimes when they hear that they they take it very personally and they think if they're a straight white male who's in the hobby that somehow this means that they're not welcome in the hobby or that people are saying that they don't belong there and it's not that at all what it is is it's saying that we want our hobby to grow and in order for a hobby to grow, we need to make sure that everybody who flips through this sees themselves represented in what they're doing. Um, but you also asked me about Dungeons and Drag Queens. Dungeons and Drag Queens is fun. It is. I live here in Cleveland, and it generally happens maybe four times a year. And it's put on by Samantha Echo, and it's basically a big drag show with a kind of a fantasy theme. But I do gaming beforehand. And I've been running this game that I've been that's probably going to turn into a zine soon uh, called Queering the Dungeon. And I do the Dungeons and Drag Queens edition of that. And I've been running that at uh, conventions as well. And then at the end of Dungeons and Drag Queens, we have kind of a Mad Libs adventure where the audience gives us words. And then I read out the kind of Mad Libs adventures and the drag queens act it out as I'm um, reading it out. So they also don't know what it's going to be until they're acting it out. And that's pretty fun. Oh, that's awesome. And of course, brings us to one of the main elements of role-playing games that make them so much fun is the improv of it all, right? You know, I love how even... Uh, I'm the guy who's always the game master, basically. <laughs> but even but even as the guy who, you know, creates the, the module or whatever, you know, gets creates the game that we're going to play that evening, um, I always love how I am usually as, if not more, surprised than the players by what we end up with by... You know, a few hours at the table is lovely. So we've uh, we've thrown a lot at their, our listeners and uh, so far uh, about the game. And um, before we make the bridge over to appendix and literature, uh, could I maybe ask you for your suggestion on how someone who uh, everything we've told them so far, you know, is is new, uh, how they might how they might start where would be a good place because of course there's such a wealth of material now uh where where you might want to begin because there's Dungeons and Dragons everybody knows about that but maybe that's not the best starting point for some people. Well, I think if you're listening to this and you would really like to play in a game of something like this, but you don't really know people who are currently doing it, you don't have uh, friends who are actively recruiting players for games, then you've got a couple of options. If you have the resources available, I would highly recommend going to gaming conventions. Gaming conventions are a lot of fun. Uh, Gen Con attracts 65,000 players a year. Um, there's also, I also love Gary Con, which is in uh, Wisconsin. 
But there are gaming conventions all around the country. And I guarantee wherever you live, there is probably, I mean, I guess most of our listeners will probably be in Toronto. Uh, are, are, are you aware of uh, good gaming conventions in your area? Um no, I'm aware of good gaming stores, uh, and actually I did find a, a weekly uh, DCC game by just looking at the Goodman Games forums. Uh, so I guess there's that, and I know um, D&D has a much, uh, has a very organized, you know, find a store, find your people uh, thing on their website, which I have yet to explore, but I know it's out there. Great. And the last thing I would recommend is there's a great website called meetup.com. Yes. And on Meetup, you can go ahead and find people who have a similar mm -hmm. hobby and it's a great way to find people who want to do gaming. When I, I was living in New York City for 16 years, and I moved to Cleveland a little over a year ago. But living in New York, I really wanted to play Dungeon Crawl Classics. And I was looking on the forums, and I was trying to find people who wanted to play, and I couldn't. And I'm like, I live in a city of 8 million people. I guarantee there are people here who want to play uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. So I started the Dungeon Crawl Classics NYC meetup group. And immediately it started thriving and it ended up becoming a place where I met the uh, co-host of my uh, Appendix N Book Club podcast. And that actually is where the Appendix N Book Club started. It started off as a book club for that meetup group, uh, which then turned into a podcast later. But um, meetup groups are a great way to meet people who are also doing who are also um, running games. It could be one shots, it could be campaigns. And the great thing is there's zero commitment, which is what's great about meetup and gaming conventions is you can test the waters. And if you love it, you can keep playing. And if you don't, you don't, you never have to come back and nobody's going to bother you for <laughs> ask you, ask you where you are. It's, it's totally on your terms. For sure. I think that's a very healthy way to run it. You know, even my sort of personal at home campaign, I run as a drop in because we're all adults in our thirties with busy lives. You know, uh, it's really best not to frame these things as serious commitments. I've, I've met people who, you know, so will tell me, Oh, well, I tried D and D once, but then the GM wanted me to come every Thursday. And I, and if I didn't, they'd get mad, you know, like, but it's just one of those things where like, I feel like literally any hobby on the planet, it involves other human beings. Sometimes you just find the wrong human beings. It's not the hobby. Um, Absolutely. And, and the same is true with specific games. I know somebody will be like, oh, Shadowrun sucks. And I was like, really? Why, why do you think it sucks? Oh, you know, I played it once and it just it wasn't any fun. But it's like sometimes you play a, one game with one group and you don't enjoy it. And then people immediately just write off that whole game. Oh, for sure. It's, it's important to like, you know, try the game a couple of different times with different groups because people's styles are so different. For sure. And, and also, I think one, one last thing I want to touch on in terms of a variety of people, varieties of play uh, before we uh, move on to Appendix N uh, is um, something I don't think a lot of people think about when we talk about uh, diversity in gaming or entertainment uh, or as often as the other facets, which is age. I've always been really impressed by how uh, role-playing games can be accessible for people who are quite young and there are plenty of quite older people playing you know uh, I've, I've met many role players in their 60s and even early 70s who've been at it since the, pretty much the start of the hobby and they have these gaming groups that are like 30 years old I'm so impressed um, yeah and it's, it's just lovely that you can also so it's a way for even like you know like when I teach games like I'm having fun when I'm teaching those teens or, or even middle schoolers uh, and I'm in my 30s and we're all having a good time in a way that's hard to maybe find in life um, anyway sorry that was just me talking <laughs> no 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 but, I think uh, that's great and I, th I think that you, you bring up a good point, which is that when people talk about diversity and inclusion, oftentimes they look at gender, race, and sexuality. But 
inclusivity can be a lot a lot broader than that. It can be about age. It can be about ability. You know, for example, I know that I was dating a guy for a little while who was on the autism spectrum, and he had a really hard time playing in my meetup groups because we played in a gaming store uh, where there was a lot of other activity going on. He had a really hard time focusing. So sometimes inclusivity for you might be finding a space that is also you know, quiet and, and, um, and safe for people who are on the spectrum. Another thing I'm thinking about is I'm getting ready to go back to school in a week and I'm going to start taking uh, ASL classes. And I have kind of a fantasy of maybe I can get good enough at ASL that I could start running uh, Dungeons and Dragons or Dungeon Crawl Classics games for the deaf and hearing impaired communities. Like that could be really fun. And that's just, it, so I, I think it's a good point. Like inclusivity can be a much broader thing. Um, so Appendix N Literature, um, how, how did you come to discover it? So I had had the, so I guess first I'll let people know what the Appendix N is. So in the 1979 Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide, there are a bunch of appendices in the back and they are lettered and Appendix N is the inspirational reading section. And that is where Gary Gygax and his various editors decided to outline the books, authors, and uh, series that inspired the creation of Dungeons and Dragons, and that they recommend that you read to find inspiration for yourself. And when I started getting into the OSR, the Appendix N was also really um, getting a lot of attention. People were going back and they were reading this kind of source material. And Dungeon Crawl Classics, which is the game that I'm very much a fan of, uh, when Joseph Goodman wrote Dungeon Crawl Classics, he had just gone through and read a ton of Appendix N books. So that game was written very much with the Appendix N at the forefront. And the reason why I think the Appendix N is uh, so interesting and so important to uh, go back and revisit is that and I, I, I'm, I'm kind of semi-famous for, having, for, for, for saying um, a very hyperbolic statement, which is that Dungeons and Dragons ruined fantasy fiction. <laughs> and I don't 100% mean it, but I kind of do. Well, yeah, uh, I remember, uh, correct me if I'm, I'm mangling your phrasing, but I feel like uh, in the very first like episode zero of uh, the Book Club podcast, you said something to the effect of it's almost like Appendix N literature is pre-genre. Exactly, because Dungeons and Dragons came along and it exploded and Dungeons and Dragons became this cultural phenomenon. And when that happened, it changed how the world views fantasy fiction. And suddenly it's always an elf and a dwarf and uh, they're, they're always fighting a dragon. And now we all agree like what a dragon looks like and we all agree uh, how a ghoul works and how a vampire works and all of these things where prior to Dungeons and Dragons coming along, you can read three different authors take on a dragon and it's very different. And you can read three different authors take on what it is, what, what a, what a heroic story looks like. And it's very different. Um, so it really is kind of before we decided um, kind of the rules for fantasy fiction. And one of the big rules was that fantasy and sci-fi are separate. We've decided that since Dungeons and Dragons, fantasy and sci-fi have been very separate. Before Dungeons and before Dungeons and Dragons, 
you could hop on your rocket ship, fly to a planet, get off the rocket ship, and then go storm a castle <laughs> where that, that's got a wizard and a tower in it. Like that kind of stuff absolutely existed prior to kind of the 80s codification of fantasy fiction. Yeah. And I find that so interesting to think about. You know, I've been going back through the list and uh, as I do, uh, of course, listening to the appropriate episodes of the podcast. And uh, one book that stands out to me, um, it didn't have any spaceships in it, but uh, Lord Dunsany's uh, the king sorry i'm messing the title up the uh king of elfland's daughter um and how even just something as simple as the trolls in that and my idea of what trolls are in fantasy from D &D and etc i was like why aren't these guys blue and about nine feet tall and you know no they're small mischievous little fellows that cause all kinds of grief um yeah just even something as simple as the size of a thing like i was like oh I, i'm enjoying the story more already because it's making me engage my imagination in a way that isn't pulling up like a file photo from uh what's been codified since the 80s Absolutely. And one thing I would love to challenge you and your and your and your listeners is find somewhere before 1979 that describes elves having pointed ears. Really? In fiction. <laughs> Please. I, I I I would love to find an example of, of in fiction where an elf is described as having pointed ears, even in Tolkien. Tell me where in Tolkien it describes an elf as having pointed ears. Holy crap. I feel like uh... <laughs> I feel like a, Did that just blow yeah, your mind? Like I feel like a veil's been, been lifted here or something. Like, geez, like I'm a house pet that just discovered the outdoors. I, uh, <laughs> I, I never would have thought of that. There you go, right? It's good to question assumptions and go to the, you know, the earlier material. Um, now, um, one thing I love uh, about uh, the Book Club podcast is, of course, you guys make an effort to not just discuss the literature, but to um, draw lines of influence uh, from it to uh, our favorite hobby here. Um, and even you know, discuss how it could maybe um, boost your own personal game at home. Uh, would you mind maybe giving an example or two uh, that comes to mind of how reading appendix and literature has directly or, or generally benefited you in your experiences uh, jamming? Uh, sure. Well, first off, I guess one thing I would say is that it's allow it's it's the more of this stuff I read, the more ideas I have to draw from. So it's allowing for me to be a more creative GM. And it's funny because I think a lot of people be like, okay, so you just have more things to rip off. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Uh, please steal ideas because that's how you get good games. You know, I, I remember when I was a fledgling GM, I used to think that I needed to have everything prepared beforehand and every conceivable direction they needed to go needed to be mapped out. I needed to have these piece, these NPCs names written out and their stats. Even you don't need any of that stuff. If you're reading a lot of fiction, uh, you're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff to draw from. Um, and I guess also one thing I would say is like there, there's kind of constantly like looking at what the characters in the story are struggling with um, also helps me um, be creative with giving my, 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 my players new challenges. Um, also, like, for example, I'll, I'll give you a good concrete example. Jack Vance's uh, The Dying Earth series. These books are fantastic. And in The Eyes of the Overworld, The Eyes of the Overworld, yeah, that's the second one. 
Kugel, who is this horrible, horrible person, uh, is going from town to town having these little misadventures. But one of the things that's really cool about Eyes of the Overworld is it takes place in the far, far flung future. It's like a, Earth a billion years in the future. The, Earth, the, the sun is about to die. But it's not – I mean, and, and, and high technology exists, but it's kind of like dead and in the long past. So people don't really understand how it works, and it's probably just what magic is now. So we've got these people who are practicing magic. But as Kugel goes from town to town, each town is so different. The cultures of each town are very unique. And reading that, it inspires me to, to ask myself, how can I make every town that my players visit different than the next? And it might just be that, like in this town, everybody wears blue and has big pointed hats. It can be something <laughs> dumb like that. Or you can have a very strange archaic laws for this town. Maybe this town loves strangers. Maybe this town distrust strangers maybe this town pretends to love strangers but really they're gonna like they're gonna try to kidnap you and try to uh feed you to this thing that they need to give a um a uh, offering to annually <laughs> you know it's 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 those kinds of things that i i feel like i i i could have i maybe come up with this stuff on my own but reading it it really inspires me to inject uh more creativity into the worlds that i'm creating for my for my players. For sure, yeah. And I mean, stealing, I mean, what the writers do in general, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and, and it even makes me think of, um, to come back to gaming for a moment, just to give our listeners who might be uh, beginners or, or, or relatively early in their careers a little tip. Um, there's also a popular technique called reskinning. Right. So you don't have to come up with, I mean, you know this, Jeff, you don't have to reinvent the orc every time. Why not just use the same, you know, block of statistics, but now it's like a blue guy with three eyes and five arms and he, you know, he loves mushrooms or whatever. Like, you know, that's uh, probably something better than what I just ripped there, but you know what I mean? No, absolutely. And it works in both directions. You know, if, if you want to, uh, like Dungeon Crawl Classics, you're not going to find an orc in any of those adventures. But if you're trying to port Dungeon Crawl Classics over to a more traditional D&D world, you can make all those beastmen orcs or vice versa. If you want to run a classic D&D module in Dungeon Crawl Classics, just because it says that those are kobolds, they don't have to be kobolds. They could be like little weird hairless, uh, hairless children who've got like weird wrinkled faces and sharp claws. Um, you <laughs> yeah, know? no, for sure. I, it's, it's just lovely. I, I think something that often intimidates people who are, are looking new to, new to the hobby is the, um, you know, some, some of the rule books are, are, are phone books. And so you look at them and think, oh, I have to memorize all this and I have to do everything precisely. No, you don't. Uh, you can reskin things. You can steal stuff from great old novels. Uh, as long as everybody at the table is having fun, that's the point, right? I would say it, de it depends on the game and it depends on the social contract at the table um because if you're playing something like pathfinder usually the players and the gm are very much um the the, the culture of pathfinder is that we are going to generally follow the rules as written in the book so in 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 that game style it actually probably there will be a lot of moments where people pause the game to turn to page 271 to find out what the rules on drowning are uh, but if you play a game like Dungeon Crawl Classics, which is very much about making making judgments on the fly and not really worrying too much about what our rules is written, um, then in that kind of style of gaming, you can just kind of make up what you want and and go with it. But it depends on both the game and what the players and the GM have kind of um, the kind of culture they've built at their table. True, true. Um, so yeah, so to come back to Appendix N, I think one thing I've I've really enjoyed about it personally is that. 
um, they tend to be shorter works. And so I have found it easier to dip in and out of uh, different authors, um, you know, canons uh, than say, uh, I, I feel like, uh, I can't remember if it was you or your co-host uh, in um, the book club podcast, but at one point said it feels like a single volume of Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time can be longer than the entirety of Tolkien's saga. Uh, you know, do you stand by that? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, part of that, which is kind of fun, is that also a lot of that was the technology at the time. They weren't able to uh, they weren't able to make paperbacks that were too, too long. So they actually had to keep paperbacks pretty small. Oh. So that's that that's part of it. And even prior to that, um, you know, a lot of this stuff that inspired D&D came from the pulps. So these were literally, liter literally literary magazines. So first we had magazines, which, you know, just because it's a magazine, obviously they can't be sprawling pieces. Even if they're in several sections, it's probably not going to end up being, you know, tens of thousands of pages. Uh, and then when they went from the magazine form to the paperback form, they you couldn't have a 2,000-page paperback at the time. They, they just didn't have the ability to make that work. Um so that that's part of it, which is kind of funny. But yes, the Appendix N literature at the time was much, much shorter generally. Uh, so because of that, they're kind of more fun, bite-sized pieces. And they tend to move at a clip. Yeah. Something that'll – if you read Eyes of the Overworld, the amount of action in 50 pages is staggering. Where you read something like I, uh, the, the um, Song of Ice and Fire trilogy uh, – not trilogy, the Song of Ice and Fire books – 50 pages might just be Brienne walking through the woods. Yeah, and I mean, bless her, it's a different style. <laughs> but boy, if you want something to move more quickly, and, and often I find, um, I think I'm probably regurgitating something from the Book Club podcast here, uh, say um, Robert Howard, uh, in some of his uh, short Conan stories, loves to start at what feels like the climax of a, of a story that you're just joining in as the Conan's finishing a big battle before he has a weird encounter with the ghost of a frost giant's daughter or whatever. Um, sure. Yeah, so it's really cool, man. It gets you right into it. So, and, and I think, yeah, that, that shorter length is nice because it makes it more accessible. Now, of course, uh, this is the Friends of the Merrill podcast. I encourage all listeners to go to the Merrill uh, archive to check out anything on the appendix and reading list. But we're also on the internet, and not everybody is going to have access to that archive. So um, how would you, Jeff, recommend people uh, find these books, which is, you know, most a lot of them are still in print. Obviously, it's not hard to find, say, Lovecraft. Um, but a lot of them, like Lynn Carter, you know, it's they, they're a little trickier to find. How would you recommend people uh, dig up some Appendix N? Well, some of the older writers, their works are in the public domain. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Lord Dunsany, uh, A. Merritt, H.P. Lovecraft. Some of those folks, you can find their stuff free online. Um, and it's not you're not doing anything shady or illegal by reading it free, free online. That's uh, the what is it? The Gutenberg Gutenberg project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disney doesn't own any of these guys yet, so so far we're good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's one way you can do it. Um, another way is just to hit used bookstores um, and thrift stores and look look through their paperback collection. You know, it's amazing the kind of stuff that you can find at these places. Um, Lynn Carter and Andre Norton are authors who they were quite prolific and it's it's not that unusual to find their work sitting somewhere on a used bookshelf um at a used bookstore's bookshelf collecting dust uh, but some of the authors are actually quite um 
difficult to track down. Uh, for example, Margaret St. Clair, uh, she has two books that are listed on the Appendix N, and one of them is called The Shadow People. And it is a wild book. It's about these hippies in 1969 who then go underneath the earth and are eating hallucinogenic mushrooms and end up like going on these crazy quests underneath the ground. It's very wild stuff. And then they come when they come back up from the earth. It's now like weird, and if there's like there's like there's now like robot police who are like patrolling Berkeley. It's it's wild, but like this story, but this book, for example, has it. It was only ever in print once, uh, uh, and the 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 copyrights for Margaret Sinclair's works are kind of in a, in a, they're being disputed. So because of that, these books can't really make it back out. So really, if you want to find something like that, you have to go to Amazon or eBay. And if you just log in now to try to find it, it's probably going to be 30 bucks to get a paperback. Um, but with those kinds of rarer ones, what I would suggest doing is go to eBay and you can do a saved search. So they will send you an alert when somebody posts a new listing for it. And that's a good way to find um, a cheaper version of these kinds of more obscure titles. Uh, I didn't know that trick. Thank you. Um, and yeah, it's everything you say about secondhand bookstores, of course, is very true, uh, or, or stores that sell new stuff that have a secondhand section. Uh, one thing I, I've also enjoyed is how affordable most of them are. I mean, I just got pretty much the whole um, World's End series for five bucks a pop uh, from Back of Phoenix Books in Toronto, Friends of the Friends. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> um, a little shout out to our buddies there. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's very accessible, uh, which I like. Um, so speaking of accessibility, um, now, of course, you have mentioned uh, One Woman Author, and we did cover uh, the side of things a bit with uh, the role-playing games, but uh, it is worth mentioning, perhaps, that there is a bit of a parade of the, you know, the old white straight guys uh, in the Appendix N canon, and uh, Howard Philip Lovecraft's incandescent bigotry has been well covered in other venues. I don't think we need to do that here. Um, but it is nice to know that there are, there are some female authors, um, and, oh no, the name is escaping me. Um, is it Andre Norton, uh, who is a, a queer black author uh, doing a lot of sci-fi and that some of it that fell into the canon? Or am I thinking of someone else? You're thinking of somebody else. Yeah. So there, there are definitely no... The, the, all of the Appendix and authors are white. Okay. Um, and three of them are women. Uh, we've got Margaret St. Clair, Andre Norton, and Lee Brackett. Those are our three female writers who are officially listed in the Appendix N. Um, but yes, that's correct. Um, all of the Appendix N authors are, are white, most are men. And a lot of the writing is from, actually all of the writing is from the 1910s to the 1970s. So also they were very different cultural norms. Some people, you're reading the, their works now and it's it, 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 it doesn't really... Um, it doesn't deviate too much from contemporary norms and mores, but then some of them you read and it's, it's pretty shocking the way they describe black people or the way they treat women in stories. Um, and one of the things that Hoy and I talked about in episode zero of our podcast is that we are, as we're reading these works, we are absolutely a going to talk about these things um, as they come up for us. Um, B, we're not going to apologize for them because, I mean, it, it, some of these authors, they really were just products of their time, and some of them actually were horrible bigots. Um, 
and we're not going to say that this is necessarily okay and that you should forgive this stuff because we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what it's like reading it from a contemporary perspective. Um, but also, we're not going to tell you not to read these things um, because of, of um, those um, – I'm losing my eloquence oh, that's here. That's <laughs> all right. Because of, well, because of those elements, right? I mean, uh, for example, my partner is a medievalist. I mean, we still study medieval art even though we sure as hell don't subscribe to a lot of the beliefs from that era. <laughs> yeah, very fair. Very fair. Yeah, and so similarly, yeah, exactly. This is, this is a good period of, of literature. It's worth knowing. Uh, it can expand your, uh, you know, your gaming uh, nights but also your, your awareness of fantasy. I think it's also very valuable for authors uh, to help break themselves out of it. I'm going to start thinking twice about giving an elf pointed ears <laughs> from this point already. Um, certainly my world's been opened up. Uh, and I, yeah, and I think that's a, I, I really like how you guys handle that in the podcast. I think that's a very good attitude. Thank you. And I think, you know, not only can we take inspiration from reading things that we really like that really work, we can also take inspiration by reading things that don't work. So when I read a representation of a female character in, a, in one of these older stories that rubs me the wrong way, it is a it is a great opportunity for me to ask myself, how am I representing women in my current gaming? So we can learn from both the great examples and the bad examples that are being placed before us. Absolutely. I mean, I think about my own gaming table, and I am not the only one who does this uh, or has this attitude. But uh, I, a while ago, I decided, you know, whatever verisimilitude could be gained by having, say, our take on medieval attitudes towards women in a medieval fantasy game um, is vastly outweighed by what is lost by making any women at the table think, oh, cool, really big sexism in the game I play to get away from my life where I encounter this probably in all kinds of other venues, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so I guess uh, we, we've really covered some bases here with role-playing games and Appendix N. Um, I'm curious, do you have any sort of... Um, closing thoughts on either the hobby uh, or the the reading list and, and its works uh, that maybe we've missed that you'd like to share? I do, yeah. So one thing that I would love to chat about briefly is also if you are a big fan of Dungeons & Dragons, but you have not read much on the appendix end, it is an incredibly rewarding experience because it's so fun to go back and literally see exactly what Gary Gygax stole um, for example, when you read uh, Three Hearts and uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Three Hearts and Three Lions by Paul Anderson, you mentioned the troll. That is where the D and D troll comes from. It is exactly like the troll in that scene. And you read something like Elsprague de Camp and uh, Fletcher Pratt's The Complete Enchanter series, and you'd see how. Um, the main character, Harold Shea, is talking about magic, and he's talking about how all magic has verbal and somatic components. He literally says the words verbal and somatic components. And in Dungeons and Dragons, when you're looking at spells, they all have verbal, material, and somatic components. When you read the Jack Vance Dying Earth series, they, they look at a spell, they memorize it in their brain, and as soon as they cast it, it's gone which is exactly how it works in Dungeons and Dragons. So it's it's really kind of, it's fun and exciting to kind of, they're like little Easter eggs when you're like, oh, that's where that came from. Uh, also, the, the, the law versus chaos alignment system is all throughout um, the Michael Moorcock stories, Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword. So I would say reading the Appendix N is a very fulfilling 
uh, endeavor, both as somebody who's looking for inspiration, somebody who is new to the hobby, and somebody who has been playing for a very long time but hasn't read a lot of these works. There's a lot of a lot of uh, rich material to mine. Absolutely, all good points, man. Uh, so, okay, how about we we tie this off by looking to the future? Um, from your your own position as an experienced hobbyist and someone who plainly thinks uh, quite a bit about it. Um, where do you feel that RPGs are going? You know, I, I, I think um, of what we were talking about a few minutes ago uh, regarding World of Warcraft and D&D kind of responding to that in the early 2000s. But now it's we have a lot of very popular um, stuff going on with uh, gaming over the Internet using things like uh, Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds. You know, there's that uh, incredibly popular uh, D&D uh, webcast uh, out of uh, California whose name escapes me. Crap. Um, but it's the one with all the voice actors uh, and the and the uh, the main host of it was in the D&D Art and Arcana book in kind of a mock-up of an 80s classic ad. Um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I know Adventure Time is really big, but I know the one you're talking... Oh, um, Roll... No... I'm forgetting what it's called too, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Clearly, that's not my my wheelhouse. But <laughs> oh, Matt Mercer, Matt Mercer is the guy. Um, yeah, people who are listening to this who actually know what we're talking about are screaming. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've got a friend who's going to give me grief for this later, but oh well. Um, sorry, Gavin. Um, so, uh, so anyway, well, my point being, where 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 do you personally see uh, the hobby going, and, and not just in technology? I mean, that's an easy reach for when you're talking about the future. But I mean, obviously, it's been involving becoming more inclusive, uh, more looking at different ages. You know, I'm seeing RPGs for small children, um, uh, and uh, more story based stuff coming up, like Dungeon World. Uh, yeah. So, what, what what kind of trends? And, and forecasts would you give us, which we will, of course, hold you to. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, well, I will say that in the early 90s, I told a friend that I thought Ska was going to be the next big thing. And then Ska became the next big thing. And like for a decade, he kept being like, how did you figure that out? <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'll be able to actually figure this one out. But um, what? What I would say is right now, the role-playing game industry and hobby is bigger than it's ever been. And is the bubble about to burst or is it only going to get bigger and bigger? Who's to say? But right now we are definitely in a golden age of our hobby. Um, and although technology is making it easier and easier for us to game over the internet and have virtual gaming experiences, I think that kind of online MMORPGs and games like that those are going to be kind of the heart of the online experience. I think that the future of tabletop gaming is, is about bringing people together in real life at a table with paper and pencil and dice um, in an age where it's easier and easier not to meet up in person. Um, I, this hobby is, I think, very much about sitting down and looking a friend a friend in the eye and rolling dice and laughing and just kind of sharing our creativity in 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 a in a, in, in in the real world. So I think the future of tabletop role playing game is IRL. It's all about um, how we can make time to sit down and game with our friends in real life. Well, I think that's beautifully put. Uh, all right, so uh, thank you very much for your time, Jeff. It's been lovely chatting with you. Absolutely. This has been fun. Thanks, Oliver. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. 
Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.